Uh, We are going to look at Acts chapter 2, and last week we looked at uh, the moment of Pentecost, this moment where a profound uh, work of the Holy Spirit comes upon the people of God. And what is the great goal of the moment of Pentecost? What is the result? Why does God pour out His Spirit? It's to form His church. We are going to look at Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47, which describes something of a kind of blueprint We see the the early church being formed together, these 3,000 plus believers, and they are in Jerusalem, and they're meeting in the temple, and what follows, I think, is, I would argue, one of the most beautiful passages in the New Testament, that was we see a people who are devoted to God. So let me read to you Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I wonder how you would define the passage that we just read. What is the essence of this first early church that we see? And I would argue that the defining characteristic that we see in this passage is devotion. You see it right at the beginning, They devoted themselves, the apostles' teaching, and it goes on. And this idea of devotion, it speaks of a a dedication, a sense of commitment. In fact, when you think of devotion, you think about the other ways we've heard it used. You think about a a devoted mother, one who would uh, pour out her time and sacrifice sleep and energy and all those other things to care for her children. Or a devoted spouse, uh, someone who cares for their wife, maybe in the midst of great sickness. It speaks of Sacrifice. It speaks of commitment, of dedication, born out of love. And I think we see this picture, we see this devotion in the people of God. And we see it at a number of different levels. We see it in their devotion to the ordinary rhythms of church life. We see this right at the beginning of the passage. It speaks of them being devoted to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, to fellowship. There is in that devotion a kind of sense of shared spiritual formation, a sense that they are devoted to being shaped and formed into the people of God together. You can imagine them meeting in the temple complex. It's a a large um, place with many different kind of open courtyards and contexts where they would have been sitting there listening to the apostles, teaching them and praying and sharing communion together. So they are devoted. They're experiencing what in very many ways feels like what we are experiencing on a Sunday gathering. But you also see their devotion to each other. Part of what makes this passage so beautiful to those of us who are Christians who look at this and say, there's something about this that feels attractive. I think undoubtedly it's the, it's the love that we see in this passage. They are um, sacrificially generous to one another. They are committed to one another, meeting in their homes, sharing their food with one another out of glad and generous hearts. It's a sense of, of love that, to be honest, our secular society dreams of that we look around the world and see so much relational disorder, 
so much ego going on in your workplaces, so much kind of sharp elbows. And we say we want, we want, we want a world full of this kind of love that we see here. So we see their devotion to one another. But we also see that this is not a kind of superficial devotion. It's not just that they're kind of saying, we will make sure we meet together regularly. There is a devotion from the heart here. You see that their different um, posture towards God. Ultimately, their devotion to God himself. You see in verse 43, the, the awe. There's awe, there's reverence, there's worship for God. Later on, it talks about this glad and generous heart. a sense of joy and gratitude resulting and overflowing in praise. This is almost an organic work of the Spirit. There is a hunger for God and a worship of God that is driving them together. There's nothing superficial about this vision. And I want to argue today, really, that this is what Christ intends for his church. When you think about what kind of church brings pleasure to Christ... What kind of church does Christ intend us to be? It is a people of devotion. That word, devotion, of commitment and dedication to the gathering, to each other, a sense of worship. And maybe just don't move the mouse. Um, (laughs) It's a sense of devotion that the Lord wants from us. In fact, you see this in Titus chapter chapter 2. He's describing Christ's great intention behind his incarnation and ultimately his death. And it says this, Our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Zealous, eager, devoted, a passion which results in action. And so we have to ask ourselves, is this who we are as individuals? Do we see a devotion to God in our own hearts, a passion and a hunger that drives us into a devoted commitment to the church gathering and to one another? We've got to ask ourselves individually, is this true of us? But we've also got to ask ourselves, is this true of us as a community? This is a, a kind of diagnostic moment for us. To say, is this true of us? Do we look like this Acts 2 vision? When you make something, you build something, you get an Ikea furniture, and you, and you kind of look at the reality of what you built, and you compare it against the blueprint, and sometimes you think, that looks nothing like what I was meant to build. And as we look at this passage, we have to ask ourselves, do we see the love that we see here? Do we see the commitment and dedication to gathering together that we see in the people of God? Why? Well, one sense, it's, it's, a, it's pure obedience. I think this passage is intended to be taken normatively. But I also think we have to see the opportunity before us to create something beautiful. In, pa- in the power of the Holy Spirit, we have an opportunity to create something beautiful. This is a deeply attractive picture. And I should say, as I see at the outset, I, I see many moments where I see something of this spirit in our gathering, in our people, in the, in the church at Grace. This is a moment to create something beautiful. You can see the attractiveness here, even in the response of their community. You see that they haven't withdrawn from society. They are gathering in the temple complex where the Jews would have been coming to worship. 
And as they're doing so, they, it says, describes them gaining favor, that the community around them is looking on favorably on them. In fact, it says so much so that there is a steady stream, that numbers are being added to their gathering on a daily basis. And what is going on there? Well, I'm sure that's just the sovereign work of the Spirit, that people are being drawn into the gathering because God is working on their hearts. But I think there's also something of a sense of they are being attracted to this. They are seeing these people. Remember, these are the religious people. So when they see their devotion, there's something of that which they go, I want what you have. They see their love, and perhaps they say, we haven't seen that before, a devotion from the heart. Perhaps we want, they want that. Would that be true, that for those of you, maybe you're coming from outside and you look at this community, I would hope that you would say there's something different about these people, and ultimately that would be, they would recognize something of the Spirit's work amongst us, and that that would draw you, if you're coming from the outside, you say, I'm not a Christian, that that would actually be part of what draws you to God. I was, um, my first job in London, I was working as a consultant and working long hours, and I happened to be placed next to a guy, Pakistani, British guy, Muslim guy, and we worked very long hours, we talked about everything and anything, including um, our faiths, our different faiths, and, and towards the end of that first year together, um, he, at one point he just turned to me and said, I can see that you love God, and I think the implication was in a way that I haven't experienced before. You know, he'd grown up in a kind of religious background and kind of going through all the, all the kind of right um, practices, so to speak. But he could tell there was something different about what I had. I don't think it was anything special about me. I just think it was what God does when he works in your heart to bring a genuine affection and thankfulness to God. But he said, I could see, I can see something different about you. And I think that's what's going on in this moment. See the opportunity to build something beautiful together in the power of the Holy Spirit, not in our own strength. But as I open this passage, I suspect there are some of you that are repelled by this vision, or at least not quite as invigorated by it as I am. There's some of you where this just feels a bit implausible, where you say, best will in the world, I've never seen a church like this. (laughs) And so I think this is just kind of a bit idyllic and unobtainable for us. And I think I would agree that this is a a beautiful picture, and it, it does feel a little bit idyllic. And in fact, if you go on through the book of Acts, you'll see it's not quite as easy as this. And there's uh, deception a little bit later. And there's conflict. Think about how Paul and Barnabas, who are missionary associates at one point in Acts 15, there's a sharp disagreement between them. And they have to go their separate ways. There are neglected needs in Acts chapter 6. that Some of the people are being neglected in the community. And I think we live in something of a tension. We will always be imperfect people in this life, imaging and seeking to live after a perfect saviour. But even in that tension, that doesn't mean we should pull back from seeking to live up to and into this great vision of the devoted people of God, even accepting that tension. For some of you, there may be something more going on in you. You kind of almost are repelled by this vision of devotion to God and devotion to his church, because you might have devoted yourself to the church and then be burnt. And maybe you've seen leaders who have, in some way, been very far from the biblical vision of leadership, and so you feel burnt by the church rather than attracted to this vision. Maybe you think it's almost the church is a kind of broken human edifice. If that's our experience... All the more important that we take hold of this biblical vision and say, what does the biblical framework for leadership look like? All the more essential that we say, let's follow that rather than the broken examples of leadership that we unfortunately have seen in our generation. But for some of you, I think this just just feels too heavy. 
You kind of say, well, I'm, I'm quite comfortable coming to church every now and again, and I don't really know people here, but, it's, but I'm kind of more content with that kind of level of commitment. This idea of devotion just feels too extreme. And what I want to really speak to you about is say, look, you must see how limited that vision is. That you, you It's a bit of a cliche, but you get out what you put in. And actually, as you dive in, as you kind of take hold of Christ's call to devote yourself to him and to his people, to the church, I think you experience great fruit and beauty and joy and healthy, deep relationships that are rewarding as well as costly and hard. So there's so much more than some of you have been experiencing. So let me unpack then, what does this devotion look like? First of all, we see a devotion to the ordinary rhythms of church life. A devotion to the ordinary rhythms of church life. You see, the early church is hungry to grow. You can imagine here, it's a bit like kindergarten. There are 3,000 new believers, and the apostles are probably feeling a little bit like, oh gosh, how am I going to disciple and shape, and, and how are we going to deal with, this, with these new, new um, babes in Christ? And what we see is that they are devoting themselves to the gathering together, to fellowship, to teaching, to communion, and to prayer. And for some of us, we don't realize the power of the simple commitment to the ordinary rhythms of church life. We need to grasp how essential these basic building blocks are to our growth in Christ. There's a paradox here. You see the way that this community is being shaped by what feel relatively ordinary things. You see in verse 43, as a result of their devotion to these different practices, awe came upon every soul and many... There's a sense of great reverence and fear. Later on, it talks about the other, other sides of their kind of emotional response. What I'm saying is some of us are looking for a kind of silver bullet. We're looking for something that will change the spiritual struggle of our life in various ways. will transform our spiritual lives, you might say. We need to see that these simple rhythms, established 2,000 years ago in this moment, the same spiritual rhythms that we continue to participate in today, are the way that God wants to shape our hearts and our minds to become more like him. It speaks to those who perhaps lack any, a sense of commitment or dedication to the Sunday gathering. You say, you don't really, I don't really see the need to devote myself to this regular gathering. Well, what you've got to see is that these communal, and they are communal, by the way, these communal rhythms are the way that God wants to change you. Let's see them. So the first is that they are devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Really, I think the modern equivalent, of course, is the Bible. The apostolic witness goes on to shape much of what we consider to be the New Testament, both in the gospel accounts of the apostles' time with him and also then the teaching that follows from that community. And what we see is that these people are devoted to listening to God. They're saying the way we will become the people that you've called us to be is that we are listening to his voice together. We are asking him to shape us. Brothers and sisters, is that our posture? As we come to God's word, Sunday by Sunday, we're saying, God, would you shape us? Would you speak to us? Would you teach us? Why do we need this? Why do we need to spend 45 minutes or so looking at the Bible every week? It's because unless we see a vision of who God is, Unless we are reminded week in, week out, and day by day in your own personal practice of the majesty and the glory of the living God, we cannot 
become like him. We cannot live in a posture of surrender to him. There's an idea in the, in the Bible, you'll see, of the idea of beholding God to become like him. How do we see God except by seeing his work in the world, in the Bible? I think about the psalmist in Psalm 27 who says, One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Are we coming with that posture? It says, God, I want to see you. I want to see your glory as I open the pages of Scripture. I want to see your work in the world. And as I do that, I want to be shaped by that. That is the posture of every believer. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, whose voice are you listening to? Because the world has many voices. And you will undoubtedly be listening to those voices, whether it's podcasts or TV shows, and everybody who writes and makes a TV show has an agenda and a kind of creative vision and a worldview. And whether you like it or not, you are being shaped by the voices that you're listening to. It's almost natural. You can't help it. I wonder if you were to measure up the various different TV shows and podcasts and media that you consume on one side, and then compare that to the extent to which you personally read the Bible or listen to the Bible preached on a Sunday, and you look at those two, I would undoubtedly see that there's, there's an imbalance, that we are all the time being unconsciously shaped by the voices of our culture that kind of seek to shape for us, consciously or unconsciously, to give us a vision of what is admirable, what is wise, what is noble. And unless we, unless we make an active and proactive intention to say, I want to be shaped by God's voice, then we will just naturally end up looking like everybody else. Whose voice are you listening to? Think about Mary in Luke chapter 10. Martha is busy. She's doing all the stuff. But Mary, what does she do? Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listen to his teaching. She is devoted to Christ's word and instruction. That is the posture that God wants from us. Are we listening to him? Are we hungry to listen to him? Ultimately, what, how does this play itself out? We become like biblical citizens. We become men and women who are shaped by what we've read and his voice speaking to us. And it's a little bit like, have you ever spent so much time with someone so that you can kind of hear their voice in your head when you are doing different things without them? Uh, my colleague Andrew is on sabbatical, and we spent a lot of time together, and such that as I now, a few weeks into a sabbatical, come up with all sorts of harebrained schemes to uh, take, I can hear his voice in my head saying, no, don't do it. <laughs> Stay focused on what you've been char charged to do. Don't go and do all those other things. I've spent time and his voice is in my head. <laughs> We're in meetings, I'm like, I know what Andrew would say here. And, and it's a little bit like that, but much more, <laughs> such would be that you would hear the voice of God above any other human voice, saying actually, as you live life, the voice of God in Scripture just is there in your unconscious thoughts. As you feel temptation to do, return to that same sin, in your mind, for example, might be that picture that you see in Scripture of uh, returning to sin, being like a dog returning to its vomit. And you think, no, I'm, I'd be foolish to do so. Or uh, perhaps in that moment when you're feeling great condemnation and guilt and you, you knee-jerk straight to that verse, perhaps that you've learnt, that says, as far as the east is from the west, so far have you removed my transgressions from me. And that moment, that scripture, that truth, that voice of God brings comfort to your heart. 
Or perhaps you're at work and someone sings your praises and, and, and kind of talks about how amazing you are. You, such, you say, some of us, I wish that would happen to me. But some, some, someone does that to you. And in that moment, you say, thank you. I'm, I'm grateful for the encouragement. But in your mind, you say, no, but I know that, the, that my identity is as a child of God. And I'm not going to allow myself to be puffed up and to hold on to this uh, praise as kind of part of my identity. So as we listen to God's voice, he shapes us transforms our minds, and we become the biblical citizens that he intends us to be. But there's also a, so we see the devotion to the apostles' teaching. There's also a devotion to the gospel here. Notice he talks about breaking bread. And you think, what's he talking about there? Well, in the context, verse 42, he's talking about worship. The breaking bread is talking about communion. Now, why are they following this pattern of communion? So early on, well, in one sense, it's obedience. Jesus taught them 50 days or so previously uh, at the Last Supper to eat this meal in remembrance of him. But we do this every week as a church. Why do we put such an emphasis on communion? Why do we need to devote ourselves to this practice of eating bread and drinking wine? It feels kind of weird if you're coming in from the outside, I think. Well, really, this is about a devotion to the cross, and to re-imbibing the reality of Christ's work for us individually every week. And this does two things. For some of us, for all of us, it punctures our pride. As we come into a worship gathering, as we take communion, we are being reminded Christ had to die for your sins. Christ had to die for your specific sins as we take communion. We remember that. And yet, at the same time, as we might be tempted to walk in with a great sense of condemnation and guilt about the previous week, we also are tasting and remembering and imbibing that wonderful truth of grace and the forgiveness that we've received. I remember as a young Christian, I was in a church service, and I was just feeling a great sense of guilt about some of the stuff I've been doing. And I remember almost not being able to engage with the sermon because I was so kind of weighed down by guilt and just kind of saying, okay, I, don't, I, don't belo- I don't deserve to be here kind of thing. And then came to the moment of communion. And it was almost like in that moment, something supernatural happened. As I, as I took communion, it was like the physical, the physicality of this. I can't deny this forgiveness that I've received because I'm eating the bread that symbolizes Christ's death on my behalf. I can't deny it. I'm tasting it. And there's something so precious about every week being saturated in this wonderful story of God's forgiveness. It gives us a kind of gospel security that allows us to go into the world and spend ourselves because we know that we're forgiven and loved. And we taste it every week when we take communion. Then he goes on to talk about being devoted to prayer, devoted to the prayers. He's talking about corporate prayer. Why are they doing this? Well, I think really the the extent to which we pray together as a corporate gathering will be a reflection of the sense of dependence on God. See, this Pentecost church was birthed out of a sovereign work of the Spirit, and so they cannot deny that it is God's ongoing power that will enable them to endure and to see his work in the world. They are absolutely convinced that it is God who has worked by their Spirit to make them, and he will continue to work in them. And so in the same way, we would devote ourselves, we would hear the call to devote ourselves to prayer. Every week as we gather before the service, you're welcome to join us, pre-service prayers, upper room, other context, organize one yourself, <laughs> please. We want to be a people who express our, extru- our absolute dependence on the living God, who call out to him and say, God, we need you. Would you work amongst us? The reason I think often in the West why we neglect this 
is because we come from a society that seems to get along fine without an acknowledgement of God or let alone a prayer towards him. And we kind of imbibe that. So prayer becomes a kind of afterthought or maybe something we do because we, we ought to do it rather than believing that actually this is essential because God sovereignly works through the prayers of his people. It's a paradox. It doesn't make sense. And yet I think the scripture would tell us God is sovereign and yet he uses the prayers of his people to achieve his ends. And we hold that and so we pray and we extend our dependence to God. And so you put this together and you see a picture of people who are devoted to God, devoted to hearing his voice, devoted to praying together, to remembering Christ's death on their behalf, all out of a posture of dependence, saying, God, we need you. Would you shape us? If we neglect this, if we don't see this devotion in our hearts to the average Sunday gathering, then we have to say, I think probably there's pride there. Probably a sense of, I don't really need God to do the Christian life, which is just such a ridiculous idea. But also, I think there's a hunger to grow. I mentioned that this is a people who are, they're new, aren't they? They're Pentecost. They've just become Christians. There's a hunger to grow and to know and to, to become more like Christ, who they're following now. And so, I want to ask, are we hungry to grow? We can't just look at this negatively, like, if we don't do this, there's a risk There's also something positive. As we embrace the gifts that God's given us in hearing his word and praying and taking communion, there's a sense to which this is the way that God wants to grow us up into the people that he intends us to be. I mentioned on Wednesday night at Upper Room, I was in Richmond Park on Saturday, and I I just saw these mighty oak trees. And in a moment, I felt like the Lord was um, kind of reminding me of his intention for our people, that he intends to grow up great oaks of righteousness. Do we long to grow up into steadfast people, people who are rooted in God, who are wise because God has shaped us in his word? Do we desire maturity? Because I think it's that desire that forms intentionality and that forms that sense of devotion and dedication that God wants from us. And it all starts with that commitment to these ordinary rhythms to shape us. Second of all, they are devoted to each other. You see, we all see the beauty of this passage is found in the fundamental reordering of their relationships. The miraculous formation of a community of people and a beautiful commitment to each other that comes about as a result. Have we forgotten the extent to which God wants to reshape how we relate to each other? How he wants to bring a sense of shared affinity such that even before you know the person you're in next to, if they're a believer, that you can say brother or sister to them. And out of that affinity may come love and devotion. And that love and devotion will be demonstrated, must be demonstrated practically. That is what God wants to do. To take a group of random strangers, some of who don't know each other, to form them together, to shape them out of a kind of shared commitment to one another and from that to bring love and devotion and a practical, tangible vision of his love in the way we relate to one another. That is God's vision for us. See the commitment that these brothers and sisters have to each other. Verse 44, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. Now it's not here talking about the idea that they pooled all their possessions. You see later on in the book of Acts, there's a principle of kind of voluntary generosity, that they choose to give their possessions away for the sake of the common good. 
such that there's no needy person among them. No, instead, this is better understood as the, a sign of the depth of relational commitment and, and love that is going on here. In the, the Greeks had a, had a quote, which I think is from Plato, friends have all things in common. Friends have all things in common. So the very fact that they have these things in common is a sign of the love that is existing in this family, such that they are ready to be generous to one another. And we see this in verse 25, uh, verse 45. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. There's a kind of knee-jerk generosity going on here. They say they see a need, they sell their possessions so they can share with one another. A readiness to share. And there's also this commitment to gathering together. Even in their homes, they're having food together, sharing food and, and demonstrating hospitality to one another. So how do we explain this? This radical sense of commitment to one another. And I think the answer is that there is a new center of gravity here. A new locus of belonging. New place where they belong now. Now they still have relationships with the world. They're meeting in a public place, the temple. They're still, you know, later on in the New Testament, Paul tells us uh, a man who doesn't care for his relatives financially is worse than unbeliever. So there's, there's still a, a sense of responsibility to their biological families. But now there's a new family that God is making, a new group of people that he's supernaturally forming together, saying you have a shared affinity, that you are brothers and sisters together, and that affinity, that identity that you have, should lead itself out in a commitment, a sense of responsibility to one another. Actually, before you even know each other, that is true, essentially. It's existentially true. So they, there is a responsibility that comes from this, a commitment that says, because you are my brothers and sisters, I have a responsibility for you. Just as something has changed for them, I think something should change for us too. For us, this is a great challenge to the inherent individualism of our culture. Individualism says, I am my own. I belong to myself. I am responsible for myself. And effectively, that, that's where my responsibilities end. But the Christian says, I belong to Christ. I am not my own. I belong to a new family. And I am responsible for them and they for me. And that responsibility then translates in a commitment to one another. And that commitment, that sense of saying, if you suffer, that's my responsibility, that is a great challenge to our flesh. We like our independence. We like the fact that we don't have responsibility for one another in our city, that you can kind of just go around your life and feel no sense of responsibility for others. But this individualism, it's, it's a mirage. It promises freedom and satisfaction but it results in loneliness, and you just have to look around our city to see that reality. Actually, to thrive in a city like London, it requires you to find a community and kind of voluntarily take on this sense of responsibility for one another, to commit to one another. And from that will be formed healthy relationships. But this isn't just a sense of commitment. It's actually love. That is what we see here. That is what makes it so beautiful. It is love. You say, how do I get this love that you talk about? Well, in a sense, if you follow the analogy, I think it's a little bit like um, 
forgive me, it's a bit weird, but a forced marriage, not a forced marriage, not a forced marriage, an arranged marriage. <laughs> in an arranged marriage, and I, I, I had a love marriage and chose to marry Jen and she chose to marry me, but in an arranged marriage, you are, um, you're put together by your family. And in the context of that commitment, then the, con- the assumption is that love will grow. And actually, I think there are some remarkable statistics around the kind of success of that arranged marriage, which might sound counterintuitive to us. But there's a sense to which that's exactly what's going on in the church. That the people of God are kind of being put together by God, and they are committing to one another. And in the context of that commitment, in the context of showing up every week, of inviting each other into each other's homes, of spending time together, then love can blossom. That love must be part of our experience together. Otherwise, there's something deeply wrong with our community. Last week, we spoke about the work of the Holy Spirit. And some of us, we say we aspire to be a spirit-filled church. We aspire to see the work of the Holy Spirit in fullness amongst us. But you cannot be a spirit-filled church if you don't have love. That's exactly what you see in uh, 1 Corinthians when uh, Paul is writing to a church that kind of pursuing the spiritual gifts. But right in the middle of this section about the spiritual gifts, in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, he inserts 1 Corinthians 13. And he says, look, if you, you can have all these other things, but if you don't have love, you've got nothing. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have fa- all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Brothers and sisters, we can aspire to and long for the full work of the Spirit amongst us, but we must hear the call to loving one another. It might not seem so miraculous, and yet I think anyone who's tried to love people knows that actually it requires the same deep work of the Spirit in us, in our hearts, as all, any kind of spiritual gifts that we might ask God for. This, but this love that I'm describing must be genuine, must be tangible. This is exactly what Paul writes about in Romans 12 when he's speaking to the church. He says, let love be genuine. There's such a danger as you speak about the church as a community of love that it's like a, a veneer of love, like a pretense of love, like a smile around the coffee table, but actually no sense of genuine affection and commitment to one another. That's why people look at the church and sometimes say it's hypocritical because there's a rhetoric of love but no follow-through. How do we know if your love is real? Well, this passage, I think, would say is whether it costs you something. That the real demonstration of the love that they have for one another is that it's costly, either in their time and their hospitality of inviting people into their home or literally in their generosity to one another. Actually, you see this theme of generosity all the way through the book of Acts. It's one of the defining marks of this new community. You see it here in Acts chapter 2. You see it in Acts chapter 4. He describes, um, as a result of the generosity, there was not a needy person among them. For as many were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. Acts chapter 5, we deal with Ananias and Sapphira who are not generous. Acts chapter 6 He describes how they need to appoint deacons or those to essentially help with the generosity of um, financial need, basically, uh, financial care, to uh, widows. So again and again, we see the pattern of generosity. And actually, that makes sense, because right at the beginning of this passage, he said they devote themselves to fellowship. And what is fellowship? Koinonia, it's of sharing themselves. 
saying the invitation, the call to join Christ's church is to share yourself with others. To share yourself. Are you willing to give yourself away? Whether that be in financially investing in the work of the church, whether it be finding ways of blessing others with generosity born out of love. I heard today of a life group where um, the life group leaders uh, just about to have a baby and they found out their maternity policy wasn't very good and they just shared it as a prayer need to their life group and said, oh, you know, we found out the maternity policy isn't very good. And the life group spontaneously got together and they're not particularly wealthy people, just normal Londoners, and they said, right, we're going to give them a financial gift. And they gave it as a housewoman gift, but it, but it was because they saw that need and wanted to respond to it. Jen and I were at the beginning of COVID, uh, the beginning of lockdown a few years ago, and got COVID right at the beginning, and were, I think we had, we had two children, Luke reminded me this one, I thought we just had one at the time, but we had two children, and um, <laughs> we were kind of laid out with COVID, and then our toilet got blocked, and it was just like, we can't deal with this, I've got no idea how to deal with this. And our friends just, without even thinking about it, just called up Pimlico Plumbers and uh, sorted out some of them to come around and sort our toilet out, without just no kind of second thing, just knee jerk, I see a need and I want to respond to it. So you're being generous. To share your home. You see, we do life groups in homes. It's not just because it's a convenient thing to do. In fact, it would be more convenient if we all just met here on a Wednesday night. But because that idea of sharing your home with someone else is such a precious way of you sharing yourself. To share your time. Many, for many of us, our time is a more precious commodity than our money. And yet we know that in our city of loneliness... Actually, so you can make, give such a gift to someone else by giving them a couple of hours of your time and spending time with them. Now, some of us, as I've spoken about this vision, say, this hasn't been my experience. Perhaps even this hasn't been my experience at this church. And we're not perfect, we're the first to say. But I also think we shouldn't hear this the wrong way around. As you hear this call to devote yourself to one another, you must hear it as what would Christ demand from you? What would Christ call you to rather than what hasn't been done for you? To bastardize an army recruiting slogan, think not what you others can do for you, but what can you do for others? How can I offer myself to my brothers and sisters? Because I've received so much from God, I want to live a life of giving myself away, of generosity. That is what Christ is calling us to. But thirdly and finally, they're devoted to God from the heart. You see, the danger of hearing this passage is I've got to go and do lots of things. I've got to commit in, and that's there. But you can't hear this as just a kind of call to superficially go through the motions of spirituality, of external behavior, of going on Sundays and life groups, which lacks a kind of heartfelt devotion to Christ. The beauty of what we see here is that there is an authentic posture of passion and gratitude for God. They are devoted to God from the heart. Brothers and sisters, are you just going through the motions of attending Sundays and life groups? Are you giving the appearance of devotion to God? Or is there genuine devotion from the heart that should then translate to all these other things? There's not just external devotion here. Look at this. You can see it at a number of different levels. Verse 43, an awe came upon every soul. There's a sense of reverence, a sense of wonder almost, a sense of fear of God. That's why we need to be exposed to the word of God, to see the reality and the majesty of God, such that we are overwhelmed and struck again by his awesome 
reality, the awesome majesty of the living God. We see glad and generous hearts. Their hospitality and generosity comes from a place of being glad, of receiving a sense of gratitude even, a sense of being overwhelmed by the goodness of God. And that, over, that overflows in praise, that worship is a central component of their life together. And what you've got to see is all these things work together. So they lack the right heart, and what they need to do is commit in to the right rhythms. But as they commit into the right rhythms, their hearts are changed, and it's a kind of virtuous circle. So if your heart's wrong, make a commitment and come to church and ask God to change your heart. But out of that changed heart, out of that overflow of praise, you make the commitment to come. And it's that kind of reinforcing of duty and delight. The Christian life is always duty and delight. Sometimes I feel like it and I pursue God. Sometimes I don't feel like it and I pursue him anyway. Because as I pursue him, I ask him to change my heart. Both those things should be true. Genuine delight and perseverance in pursuit of God. So do we share their joyful reverence? Is there awe in you? Think about that Isaiah vision in Isaiah 6. That moment where he's in the temple and he sees such a vision of God. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. As the seraphim say to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. We need to take take moments with the Lord such that we are regularly overwhelmed by the grandeur and majesty of God. That instinct, that worship instinct that says, I, I, you know, John the Baptist, I can't, I'm not worthy to untie his shoelaces. That sense of awe is so essential to our walk with God. Or joy. Is there joy in you, brothers and sisters? Not joy in your circumstances, but joy because you know as you know as you know that you're a son of the living God. Whether you're male or female, you're a son. You didn't deserve it. And you didn't do anything to get there. But he says, you are mine and I love you. And you're a love that is better than life. A love that is better than any other loves. That sense of delight in you (laughs) that the Father feels. It's unbelievable. That should naturally bubble up in joy in us. If If it's not making us joyful, we're probably not understanding it. And gratitude. Are we taking moments just to stop and consider the, the litany of blessings that God has placed into our lives. Physical, the comfort, the food, the house, the job, the friendships, and the spiritual. The promise of life eternal. The knowledge that we are loved. The hope that we have. And so we hear this call to be people of comprehensive devotion. Of head and heart. Of mind and will. Those who know his ways are best and choose to follow him even when they doubt him. Who love him and genuinely feel it and then choose to follow him even when they don't. And those who love him and demonstrate this love with their time and their wallets. The way they spend their time and their money reflects that they are devoted to Christ. So brothers and sisters, hear the call from Christ to devote ourselves to him. That is what it means to be a disciple, to be devoted to Christ and to be devoted to his church, to commit to each other, to commit to this gathering on a Sunday and to commit to love and to pour yourself out for your brothers and sisters.
That is the vision of the Christian life that I think Christ would call us to. But it's not just about participating in it. For some of us, we need to also hear the call to participate in building this. That God might use us to play a part in strengthening and making his church healthy. To pour ourselves out for this great goal of a healthy people. I was struck when I was reflecting on this passage of Paul's description at the end of his life. He's writing 2 Timothy. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. That is Paul's vision of his life. He says, I've poured myself out. I've spent myself. What On what? On this vision that we see here. Now, we all are looking for a purpose in our lives. That is something that I think every universal experience. Well, can there be any greater purpose than pouring yourself out for the sake of God's church being healthy? And the kingdom coming through his people. Seeing his, as the healthy church grows, people being added in and drawn into the people of God. I offer that up to you as a, as a life's purpose, that you might pour yourself out for that. You could do far worse. Hear that this is ultimately a call to Christ-likeness. Just as Christ devoted himself, gave himself, poured himself out on the cross, so we too take up the call to become like Christ. And as we do that, there may well become the question at some point, either now or in the future, is it worth it? Is it worth pouring myself out in this way? And to which we just have to look at the majesty of Christ. We just have to look at the heart of Christ, the one who poured himself out for us. You know, as we sing on Sundays, is he worth it sometimes? The answer is absolutely Absolutely, he's worth us giving every part of our lives, of spending ourselves, of pouring ourselves out for the sake of his bride, just as he is, just as he has. Let me pray.